Hi there. So this time let's go through bipolar disorders. So we'll go over bipolar one and bipolar two in this episode. What I'd like to cover off the bat is just the differences between bipolar one, bipolar two, and then we'll actually go over cyclothymia, major depressive disorder, and dysthymia. I just want to go over really quickly just the differences between these. I think it's really helpful just to start off going through these so that when we go into the more of the specifics of bipolar one and two, we can kind of section them off. So when looking through these different disorders, bipolar 1, 2, cyclothymia, major depressive disorder, MDD, and dysthymia, I'm looking at whether or not each of these have mania or mixed episodes and whether or not they have major depression. So I think sectioning these off can be helpful. So bipolar 1, they, they will have mania or mixed episodes. So yes, they will have mania or mixed episodes. In terms of major depression, it's typical, but it's not required. Bipolar 2, they will have hypomania only. There will be no mania, only hypomania. And the major depression, yes, they will have major depression. So right off the bat, we can already see the difference. So mania or mixed episodes is in bipolar 1. Hypomania is in bipolar 2. Major depression is typical in bipolar 1, but it's not required. And then bipolar 2, you will see major depression. And then quickly going into cyclothymia. So in cyclothymia, there will not be mania or mixed episodes, but they may have periods of mood elevation, but it wouldn't be considered a mania or manic episode. And then major depression, no. Associated with relatively mild depressive episodes, but it's not going to be major depression. Looking at MDD, there is not mania or mixed episodes. And yes, of course, there is major depression. That's what it is, MDD. And then dysthymia. So no, again, no, there is no mania or mixed episodes. And then usually mild, but can meet criteria for major depression in some cases with dysthymia. So those last three, you know, we've been over major depressive disorder before. I'm going to go over cyclothymia and dysthymia in the future. But right now, looking at bipolar 1 and bipolar 2, the main difference is bipolar 1, yes, they have manic episodes. In bipolar 2, they don't have manic episodes. They have hypomanic episodes. And then major depression, bipolar 1, it's typical but not required. And in bipolar 2, yes, they will have major depression. So I think that actually covers more so the pathophysiology or, or what you might want to call it of both bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. So looking at the risk factors for bipolar 1. The strongest risk factor is going to be a family history and a first degree relative. Average age of onset, often it's occurring in the 20s or 30s. Looking at the diagnosis of bipolar 1. So there is really one and only one requirement, and it's at least one manic or mixed episode. A mixed episode, this is going to be symptoms including simultaneous occurrence of greater or equal to three manic or hypomanic symptoms plus depression. And then when we're looking at mania, this is an abnormal and persistently elevated, expansive or irritable mood for at least one week with marked impairment of social and occupational function. So I keep in mind with that particularly the one week when it comes to mania. One tool to detect bipolar 1 disorder that I would keep in mind would be the mood disorder questionnaire. So this is a screening tool. Again, it'd be used if you're suspicious that a patient has bipolar 1 disorder. You might use this in order to, to determine if that's the case. I wouldn't go and spend the time learning what all the questions of that questionnaire are, but I would just know that the mood disorder questionnaire would be used in detecting bipolar 1. Now moving into the treatment of bipolar 1, the first line of medication that you're going to see, particularly on exams, is going to be lithium. In reality, lithium plus an antipsychotic or valproic acid plus an antipsychotic is what's going to be seen uh, as, as treating somebody with bipolar 1. 
if a patient is going to be prescribed lithium, I think it's important to keep in mind that any sodium loss results in increased lithium levels. So you'll find that these patients are coming in very frequently to get blood draws to make sure that their lithium levels are within a therapeutic range. And then the symptoms of increased lithium in the bloodstream or just increased lithium uh, levels in a patient would be things like vomiting and diarrhea, which exacerbate the problem, tremors, muscle weakness, confusion, vertigo, ataxia, hyperreflexia, rigidity, seizures, and coma. So these are all things maybe just keep in mind that, that those might be present and you might think that a patient might be having problems with their lithium medication if they're presenting with those kind of symptoms. But I think the main thing to keep in mind there is that any sodium loss will result in an increased lithium level in a patient. When you're looking at patients who are dealing with mixed features or rapid cycling with bipolar one, and that rapid cycling in a patient with bipolar disorder would be described as when a person experiences greater or equal to four episodes of mania, hypomania, or depressive episodes in any 12-month period. So when you're dealing with that, as in rapid cycling or mixed features, valproic acid and carbamazepine are going to be the two medications that, that are going to be prescribed or, or that, that could be used in treating those patients. There are going to be some side effects of valproic acid that I think are important to keep in mind. And then I've seen them made into a little mnemonic. So another name for valproic acid is valproate. So this can be looked at as vomiting, alopecia, liver toxicity, pancreatitis, retention of fat or weight gain, edema, which in some cases I've seen spelt as O-E-D-E-M-A, so oedema or edema, appetite increase, tremor or thrombocytopenia, and then enzyme-induced. So looking at increased liver toxicity being that enzyme-inducer of, of increased liver toxicity, which has also been seen on the black box warning for valproate, which is actually pancreatitis and hepatotoxicity. So that would make sense in that in that mnemonic. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily crucial to keep in mind, but it's a good, good mnemonic that I think can help know the side effects of valproic acid or valproate. The side effects of carbamazepine, which again is that other medication that would be used for rapid cycling or mixed features, that's going to be aplastic anemia and then SIADH or hyponatremia would be seen in, in the SIADH. When looking at medications that are effective as monotherapy or as adjunctive therapy to mood stabilizers, this would be an antipsychotic, uh, a second generation antipsychotics. So this would be a medication like risperidone, quetiapine, olanzapine, or ziprasidone. And then in the setting of acute bipolar major depression, there have actually been four psychotropics that have been approved in the, the treatment of that, and that's going to be thoracidone, cariprazine, quetiapine, and a combination of olanzapine and fluoxetine. So in the acute setting of bipolar major depression, those four medications, loracidone, cariprazine, which is Raylar, quetiapine, and that combination of olanzapine and fluoxetine can actually be used. And then just one last little bit I, I would for sure keep in mind is that you should not be giving a patient with bipolar disorder an SSRI alone. So this can actually induce a manic episode when given alone. So if there's ever a question about how do you treat a patient with bipolar disorder and the option is a single SSRI, it is not that because it can induce a manic episode when given alone. And then looking at psychotherapy, this will be cognitive, behavioral, and interpersonal psychotherapy. So now we can go into more the mechanism of action of lithium and then maybe go into more of the specifics of the indications for that medication. I'm just going to do this now because this is the first time it's really come up in the treatment of a mood disorder and bipolar disorder is where you're going to see lithium most commonly play a role. So let's just go into the mechanism of action of this medication.
So the mechanism of action of lithium actually is not totally known, but thought to be playing a role in altering neuronal sodium transport and influence the reuptake of serotonin and or potentially norepinephrine as well. So the main thing to keep in mind, we don't really know exactly how it works, but uh, it's thought to alter alter neuronal sodium and then potentially also influence the reuptake of, of serotonin and or norepinephrine. So you will see that there's a decrease in sodium, especially during the initial therapy. And then there's also an increase in serotonin. Lithium is primarily excreted by the kidneys. And the main indications for this medication is going to be bipolar disorder, acute mania, and then schizoaffective disorder with bipolar type. The adverse effects of lithium are going to be primarily endocrine. There are also some other neurologic and hematologic adverse effects as well. But looking at the endocrine adverse effects, you're potentially looking at a, a problem with secondary hyperparathyroidism. Lithium can alter the set points of receptors that sense calcium in parathyroid cells, thus promoting an excess release of um, that calcium from the parathyroid gland. You can also see hypercalcemia. Again, that kind of plays a role right there with that secondary hyperparathyroidism as it's increasing the presence of calcium in the body. There's also hypermagnesemia. So lithium therapy causes hypermagnesemia by decreasing urinary excretion. Although the mechanism for this is not completely clear, uh, we're finding that hypermagnesemia can be seen in patients taking lithium. There's also hypothyroidism. It inhibits synthesis and release of thyroid hormones and then central diabetes insipidus. So lithium promotes a lack of response to ADH through inhibition of CAMP formation, which results in patients losing the ability to reabsorb water and causing polyuria. Looking at the neurologic adverse effects of lithium, potentially seeing seizures, tremors, headaches, and sedation. Hematologically, leukocytosis has been seen, and that would cover the adverse effects that will most likely come up in any kind of examination for lithium. There are others out there, I'm sure, but the main ones that I focus on myself for uh, the pants are the ones that I've just listed. Now, looking at the therapeutic index for lithium, there's a, a very narrow therapeutic range. So that range is going to be 0.8 to 1.2 milliequivalents per liter. Levels may be toxic if you are greater than 1.5 milliequivalents per liter. And then lithium labs are obtained every two weeks until maintenance is reached. And then at that point, you're still getting them every four to eight weeks. So a patient that's being put on lithium, they really do have to commit to being present in the hospital or being present in the clinic on that routine basis so that we can make sure that they're in that therapeutic range. Um, one, so that they can be treated properly. And two, that we're preventing any adverse effects. And they do need to be very religious in taking their medications because um, it is a potentially dangerous medication, but it's also a very beneficial medication when taken properly. A routine lab that would need to be ordered on someone taking lithium would also be a TSH. Lithium is an iodine salt and it will be taken up. Iodine will be taken up by the thyroid, potentially causing a problem. Like I said before, hypothyroidism is an endocrine adverse effect of lithium. And lastly, just looking at the drug interactions, Blood level is increased by a few different things. Dehydration, thiazide diuretics, and tetracyclines, NSAIDs, metronidazole, which is flagyl, and ACE inhibitors. This could all be potential causes of an increased lithium blood level. Okay, now I think we can go into bipolar 2 disorder. So again, I'm just going to really quick go over bipolar 1. There are manic episodes, manic or mixed episodes, and then it is typical to have major depression, but it is not required. Now going into bipolar 2, hypomania is only what is present. There's no manic episodes. There's only hypomania. And then major depression will be present in bipolar 2. When looking at hypomania, 
that is described as an abnormal and persistently elevated expansive or irritable mood at least four days that one does not require hospitalization two is not associated with marked impairments of social or occupational function and three not associated with psychotic features so just to break that down really quick when we're looking at that abnormal persistently elevated expansive and irritable mood it is present for at least four days but it's not present for the seven days of the week if you hit those seven days then we're looking at bipolar one if we're looking at at least four days up until that week then we're looking at hypomania which is going to be bipolar two it does not require hospitalization and then it is not associated with the marked impairments of social or occupational function whereas in bipolar one it is marked by impairments of social and or occupational function looking at the diagnostic criteria same thing that i just mentioned it's the abnormal persistently elevated expansive or irritable mood for at least four days that does not require hospitalization not associated with the marked impairment of social or occupational function and then not associated with psychotic features but it's important to notice that there is a history of one episode one or more episodes of major depression lasting at least two weeks so this is where that major depression comes into play because we can remember that in bipolar one major depression typical but not required bipolar two it is required in order to make that diagnosis and then just looking into the pharmacology for treatment and management of bipolar two so the first line is going to be mood stabilizers and then second generation antipsychotics under mood stabilizers the most common and important ones i have listed they're going to sound similar it's lithium valproic acid and carbamazepine the second generation antipsychotics again aripiprazole olanzapine and quetiapine they should sound familiar because we would have talked about them before and then last thing looking at psychotherapy again cognitive behavioral or interpersonal psychotherapy is going to be the types that are used and then good sleep hygiene is recommended but i think you can make the case that that would be recommended in all cases all the time so hopefully this helps out looking at bipolar one and bipolar two i'm going to end up going over cyclothymic disorder and dysthymia in the future i think it was important to kind of introduce those two now just so we could kind of compare and contrast all of those together but hopefully that helps and see you next time